Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Len May and do the NA. Heat guaranteed when you press in the play. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I'm super grateful to have a great guest with us today, Mr. Kurt Schneider. Please introduce yourself to the audience. Hello, audience. Kurt Schneider here. You know, Len, I'm happy to be here as well. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I, You know, I, I do these, uh, sometimes I go and get people's Wikipedia pages and profiles, and like I start reading this whole thing, and, and it's like, it's boring. So I'd rather just uh, have you tell uh, everybody a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, so I have been... Um, in business for a very long time, like you have. Uh, I guess I'm showing my age already. I, uh, I've had an. Well, you're also showing my age. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I've had one of these careers that that I wonder if if you've been the same way, Len. Where if you look back on it with the with the luxury of hindsight, it seems like it made sense, right? <laughs> but when I went through it. I, it wasn't like I had any master plan. I had friends in college who knew exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to go to investment banking, then to business school, then here and here and here. I had no clue. But I think looking back, I think it was Steve Jobs that said, the only way you can connect the dots is looking backwards. Mm. And uh, I think if y'all look back, so I was in advertising in New York City during the late 80s, early 90s, which was wild and fun and crazy. Uh, were you smoking? Were you smoking cigarettes in the offices, or was that back in the fifties? Didn't have that. No, that was fifties and sixties. <laughs> there were still the last vestiges of like you know the not the three, but the two martini lunch. Was it a wet bar in the office, or we didn't have that either? We didn't have the wet bar in the office. Sadly, I had that in a later office I was in, yeah. but not in uh, not in advertising. But it definitely was encouraged when you were taken out by a rep or something. And right. when I was making twenty grand. The year I went out with every rep that came in. Anyone had said, can I pitch you on? Yep. I don't care yeah. what it is. Yeah, free lunch, lunch, free drink. 
<laughs> exactly. So it was a lot of fun. And then uh, I moved to L.A. and I worked at the Walt Disney Company and I worked at Fox Sportsnet. We launched that and L.A. was for a New Yorker was, well, you know, having moved transplanted from the East Coast, it is a uh, it's a wild, wonderful ride out there when you get out there. You know, everyone said, oh, you guys are going to hate it. And people say you're just moving for the weather. A, we loved it. And B, while we didn't move for the weather, it doesn't suck. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's one of the best things that I tell everybody. I mean, you can be in kind of shitty mood, but when you wake up and it's sunny out, it just does something to you. So I completely, especially in the wintertime when it's like, oh, it's miserable in the East Coast. Man, it's such an amazing place. So yeah, and I, I remember I remember walking to the, uh, they called it the commissary on the Burbank lot of Walt Disney Company. Yeah. And I'd been there maybe three weeks and I was with a bunch of guys in my group and I looked around, and I said, man, it's another gorgeous day. And they looked at me, they're like, you don't get it, fella. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> they're all pretty gorgeous. <laughs> exactly. So, and then I moved up to Northern California. I got caught up in the siren song of .com 1.0. And what I want to be a CEO of a, let me see if I got this right, pre-IPO sports company. And the answer was yes and yes. So we moved up there and uh, it was a lot of fun. Got caught up on the whole meltdown of dot-com era. Uh, gave my investors 12 cents on the dollar, which was considered a victory, believe it or not. Yeah. And then we moved back east and I worked for World Wrestling Entertainment for Vince McMahon. I directly reported to him, which was a wild experience in and of itself. Yeah. And then I went to work for the Harlem Globetrotters. I used to like to tell people I'm the lead dunker, but when you look at me, you realize <laughs> that cannot be true. So I was CEO of that for about nine years. And then I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and here we are. Yeah, uh, it's it's a great, great uh, shortcut story. I'm sure there are so many more things that we can kind of dive into. But I want to I want to point out something you said. I, I find it interesting in terms of looking back. So I had this conversation with my daughter because uh, she, since she was five, I think, uh, we put her on stage, not because we wanted her to be an actor or anything like that, just so she can learn improv and get more confident. And she fell in love with it. And the moment that she said she wanted to be an actor, there was a kid in her improv group who got a he got a gig uh, on Modern Family, which became like a huge show. And they, the news would come in and interview him and all that. And she was mesmerized. And she was like, this is what I want to do. And she knew it right away. And she's been doing it since she was five. And it, I like always thought these people are so lucky. Like, how do you know? You get a guitar. I'm like, I'm just going to be a guitar player. I never had that either. Same thing as you. I knew that I wanted to be in music, something to do with music. But I didn't know what it was. So when I went to talk to my parents about it, I said, you guys ever hear of like Rick Rubin? Like, no. I'm like, well, he's a record producer. He's like, well, does he play an instrument? No. Uh, does he read music? No. Does he sing? Does he perform? No. But what does he do? I'm like, well, he just has a good feel. And uh, he just tells you this should be this. This is what I hear in my head. Like, well, I don't understand how you can make money off that. So they they had a they actually had a psychiatrist friend who came over <clears throat> and convinced me to go to physical therapy school instead of anything to do with music. So I went to physical therapy school, which as you're saying, connect the dots now because I'm in genetics and all that stuff. If if I look at my career, there is no direct line. It's so random. Uh Price Waterhouse, Venture Capital Company, 
commercial real estate, cannabis, all this music. How does it all relate? And if you look back and you say, I got some knowledge from here, I got some knowledge. And then you're looking at what you do during the day and like, I'm getting bits and pieces to make me better as a whole. So I can definitely relate to what you're saying. Uh, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in New York, Westchester County, New York, but I spent three years as a kid in Tokyo, Japan. Uh, so tell, tell me a little bit about that experience. You, your parents moved to Japan when you were how old? Yeah, so I, I, had, was in, I was in Tokyo for my kindergarten, first and second grades. And uh, it was really interesting. I was just reflecting on this recently, and I think, you know, a seismic shift of a move probably does something to people. Apparently, before I moved, my nickname was Weep Weep. My mom said that I used to cry all the time and hang out by her leg. Hmm. She said something happened when we got to Tokyo. She said, overnight, you went from this Weep Weep to Mr. You know, outgoing, effervescent person. And, you know, maybe I should do one of those hypnosis things. I'd like to find out what that was. But we moved to Tokyo. Mm -hmm. It was... 1970 through 1973, so a wild time to be there. Uh, you know, Tokyo, I think they were still dealing with some repercussions from World War II and their role in that. We were there because my father worked for Union Carbide. Mm-hmm. And we went, my parents did two, I thought, really prescient and, and wonderful things with me and my brother, who's two years older than me. Number one is they put us to international school. We did not go into American school. We didn't go to ASJ, American School of Japan. So my friends in kindergarten, first and second grade were Japanese, Swedish, British, German, you know, Korean, all over the place. So all of a sudden that expands your horizon. Then the company my father worked for would give us money every year, all the expats to come back to the States. But they took that money and we traveled instead around the world. So In 1971, 72, and 73, I was going to Kathmandu and Bangkok and Cairo and this and Guam and this tiny island called Yap in the middle of the South Pacific. And I think it engendered in me this wanderlust or desire to insatiable desire for new cultures, new people, take it all in and not just be with what I have. And you know, for better or for worse, it's been with me my whole time. Yeah, it's such an incredible experience. I, I, I always talk about this with uh, uh, with my daughter and, and, and her mom about investing in uh, travel. I did that with my parents. I was born in a different country. So my first uh, in, in Lithuania, my first uh, experience with travel was, you know, when I was a little kid, six years old, we go on a train and to escape the whatever the old Soviet Union was and to Poland and our Stuff is thrown out the window, as you see on, on uh, in movies, out of a out of a train, and then we go into another train, and we travel to Austria, and then there's soldiers with uh, with uh, machine guns that come on, and they take you off, and you're sitting there in a hotel room for weeks and weeks until you get another pass to go to another country, and we lived in Italy for six months until we got permission to finally, you know, come to the United States. So for me, it was sort of it wasn't the fun experience that you're describing, but it did give me a sense of like, there's more to the world than just sitting in this little basement apartment in uh, in Philadelphia. There is more I was going to see. So, you know, travel is a, a big thing, but that's why I always talk about. Mm-hmm. Did you have the end game in mind? I mean, did your parents tell you, hey, Len, we're, this is the issue. It's yeah, we're going to be a while. 
Yeah, well, they no, they never, they never. <laughs> there was there was none of that. Where it's going to be wild. We we knew we knew we were supposed to come to America. Uh, the the way that we were going to America, I wasn't sure because so being Jewish, uh, what they tr- and I re- learned this later on. The reason why we were allowed to leave is because uh, for religious persecution, the Soviet Union, and all that other stuff. So we were permitted to go, and then every single time they would try to come on and convince us to go to Israel instead because they needed. It. My parents were like, "No, we're going, we're going to America." So there was all these different clearances that you had to get through and you had to get permission. So I don't know how long it would take. My parents actually got jobs in Italy. We lived in Italy. My parents, my mom was like a tour guide. She picked up Italian really quick and she spoke Russian, Lithuanian, and she was doing uh, tours for immigrants. And then my dad was working at a car. My dad has a, you know, dual masters and all that stuff. He's working in a car wash and we were just, you know, getting by and making money. The same thing when we moved to America, nobody knew the language. My dad was working here. My mom was trying to get a job. So it was, it was interesting. And, and it humbles you because I'll never forget one thing that we, we did when we came, this is a sense of having gratitude, which I learned really early on, uh, you know, Super, super uh, broke with uh, uh, living in a shitty apartment, uh, really no furniture. So what we would do, my dad would drive. And he's like, oh, my God, Americans throw out. They put out furniture. It doesn't make any sense. If we go out at night, it's free. It never made any sense. So we would get like a couch and the TV. We got this TV. My dad, like, wired, he's an engineer. He wired it up and it works and, like for free. My mom was... <laughs> my mom was mortified. She would not get out of the car. She go, oh my God. You know, it's she first thought she thought we were kind of stealing. I'm like, my dad's like, no, it's free. They put it out on the, on the curb. It's free. So yeah, my my yeah, my furniture was I had a, a mattress that I would sleep on with uh, stains on it. And that was uh that was it. So it made me pretty humble. I went through many different phases of my life, like my parents, and then I was uh, broken, living uh, sort of homeless for a while, so uh, it was uh, it was really interesting. But you know, having the opportunity to be to be here and traveling everywhere, and then saying, "Okay, I recognize that this is great, and I, South Africa is beautiful," and there's the but coming back here and saying, "Man, if I was living there, would I have the same opportunity to be where I am?" And I just, no matter where I am in the world, I love it. I just don't think you have the same opportunity. Well, think about the serendipity of that, right? And think about the chance that life is. No matter, right? It's no matter how much you plan. And we were talking about that. My friends in college had planned. Things go awry for different reasons. And and think about those. One window could have been you were staying in Lithuania for the rest of your life. Right. The other window was you could have made the decision and gone to Israel, and that would have been your life. And the third was you came here. And each one would have been wildly different. You would have been the same person genetically, but right. think about you know who you are culturally after that. It's wild. Yeah, and, and you're right. There's so many different things. I could have been, I could have stayed married. I could have lived in Philadelphia. I uh, I could have not moved with my ex-wife because we moved. She she was an actress. We moved to LA uh, here, and if I didn't. I could have been in Philadelphia. She would have been here. Like all these different things. But, uh, you know, there is there is a reason why this all happens. And that's when you were saying connecting the dots. Uh, the dots are not necessarily a straight line. It can be just you're walking into the next phase of you. It's funny. I always like to say if life is a carousel, I want to be on the horse that goes up and down, not the one that's bolted to the ground. Yeah. And a lot of people don't mind. And I'm not putting them down. They don't mind the horse that's bolted in because guess what? 
it's not going to go down. It's yeah. not going to go up. It's going to stay there. And, and I love life that is up and down and all around. And I think that's part of the beauty of it. Yeah. It, well, I think for you, it's how you also, there's different, different people have different genetic predispositions of, and how you show up. And you were talking about your genetics stay the same way. Epigenetically, you can express different things. Uh, and it's how you show up in times of, uh, crisis or how you show up when something happens in your life, uh, some people kind of fold and everybody feels pain and, you know, different things. I don't know. I don't know how much you want to share about your uh, personal uh, journey and stuff, but you're, you can, if you want, but everybody has experiences that they go through. And when you get punched in the face, you know, you can lay down and say, I'm, you know, I got punched in the face. I'm a victim. It hurts. Uh, then you can get up and say, well, you know, that's going to motivate me to do something else. And this is and when you have this, uh, this need that's greater than yourself, like your kids, for instance, like they, what else can you do? You get punched. I still have to get up and I still have to care, take care of my kids. So all these different things are motivators. But I see every single day you speak to somebody and it's like, oh, you know, and they're miserable and this is happening in their life. And but you can choose not to feel that way. You have a choice to make that. And as much as you think you have a shitty thing going on, maybe somebody next to you has a shittier thing going on, but you're never going to see that. I, I definitely see that showing up in people's lives. That's right, for sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. So my personal kick in the nuts was my wife passed away 18 months ago. We were married for 27 years really the first girlfriend I ever had. I, as now that I look back on things, I realized that I was a serial dater, fear of commitment. And then I met her, we met in advertising together and we were together our, our whole lives until breast cancer um, took her away from me, which is devastating. And you then get this, I wouldn't say you, I'll speak for me. I then get this transcendental angst of, well, what does the future hold? Yeah. And if you don't have an anchor that you can tether off of, what does it do? So it's been it's been an interesting journey for me, certainly the last 20 months. Um, like you, I, I take solace in my podcast, my yeah. weekly podcast, yeah. because, uh, you know, I do smart drivel and it is 25 minutes every week that I so look forward to. You know, you talk yeah. about different picking up the guitar. You're talking about doing different things. They always say you're in your flow when you're challenged, but you're but you're using the best part of you. And yeah. in a wild way, smart drivel is I'm in my flow because we just our tagline is we promise the drivel and hope for the smart. <laughs> we just talk, but we talk about it, it was born out of a friend saying to us, you two guys are funny. You should you should do a you, you should do write a screenplay. Yeah. And then another friend saying to me. You know, you know, you know an awful little about an awful lot. You should do a podcast. And therefore we did it. But, you know, it's 25 minutes of, of joy every week. I, I completely feel you on that. It's 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 such a and and, and flow in general. I, I'm a big uh, a fan of flow. I, I just finished uh, uh, Stephen Kotler's uh, uh, flow research uh, uh, um, flow research collective uh, course called Zero to Dangerous, which which allows you to prime yourself for flow state. So understanding how you can release neurochemicals specifically, and every person is different when they do that. But when you find how you can prime yourself, you can get yourself into flow state. But it, 
the flow state that you get yourself is only in short intervals. So, you know, up to two hours at a time, you can be, or 90 minutes, you can be in optimal flow state. Uh, but then you need to recover and get past that because you have all these neurochemicals. There. So for me, it's, it's an amazing thing. And when you learn how to prime yourself to do that, you can get yourself in the flow state uh, voluntarily. So, you know, we all re- we both know that doing our podcast, just having a conversation, we're in flow. I'm not thinking about what I'm saying. You're not thinking. We're just we're just having a conversation. Right. But, you know, some people you get on podcasts and it's like, you know, they're they're reading their questions. And, uh, you know, it's it, it doesn't feel as as in flow state uh, completely. But for me, like doing something physical is, is important. I, I, w- I was on a podcast with this uh, 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 football player. And what he does, he does like 50 push-ups before he gets in the air. He gets himself real prime, and then he's all calm. I'm like, oh, I thought it was going to be this wild podcast because he's all pumped up, but no. So for me, finding like something physical, I found hiking to be an extremely important flow uh, priming activity for me. There, besides being in nature and, uh, and walking and, and doing all this stuff, you're not thinking. And then as soon as I'm done my hike, I have my phone. I'm flooded with ideas. So I'm like, oh my God, this came out. And I'm writing these down. So that the, Because a- you're at a place where you're more open to let them in, right? You know, yeah. I always talked about how frustrating when I was in, in, still am, but in corporate America, when you're in business, you get out of college. And once you leave college, for the most part, I'm speaking generalizations, your brain sort of goes in one vertical path and you get this muscle memory that happens of this is the way I think and this is the way I do things. And the beauty is to take that and go horizontal, stretch your brain in a different way in whatever way it is. You know, go walk around a museum, take an art history class, learn to play the guitar, do something. And it used to haunt me because I used to talk to my wife all the time. You talk about flow and this, that I would say to her, I don't have a passion. I don't like I, I didn't play the guitar. I didn't do this and that. And and she'd look at me like I was crazy. And I said, and it didn't, by the way, until she passed away, I didn't realize that the, the, the veracity of her statement. But she said, you have a passion, you have a passion for life, but but as part of that, you have a passion for your friends. Yeah. And the reason why I can now tell that it's a true flow part is. It didn't seem like it was an effort, right? I have a lot of friends that I love spending time with, and I'm lucky, but I guess I'm in flow when I'm with them, and I guess that is my passion. So it, it's not something like I can't play, you know, Rachmaninoff with my friends and show that, hey, there's my passion right. incarnate. It doesn't mean it's less of a passion, right? Yeah, and you can have multiple passions too, I, I found. And I, I, it's very similar uh, to you. I, I did the same. That's why I did so many things. And I would force myself to think that I loved what I did. And when I look back, I loved pieces of what I did, but it, it didn't serve a purpose. If I'm a commercial real estate broker, I, I thought that I was loving what I was doing, but I think I was loving the transaction. It felt like a win for me, but I'm not helping another rich guy, you know, build another shopping center. Like that doesn't, it's not fulfilling for me. It, it was missing this, this thing. And the most fulfilling part, besides like doing the podcast, which I really love, but the most fulfilling part of my work is talking to somebody who said, oh my God, I had this disease or I was feeling this and that, and this helped me. There's no money in this. It's a conversation with somebody. Oh my God, I am so grateful that whatever I said or did or, or a company was able to help you, it actually helped you in some way. 
that's that's the thing that really drives me. And that's the reason why I do what it's I do. It's great. I mean, in a, in, a, in a ridiculously small part of that, it's, and I, I won't keep coming back to our podcast, but we're on a podcast. So you talk about a podcast, we're on one. When we get feedback from people that say, you know what? It made my day. I just, I needed that at that moment. How great is that? That they yeah. burst out laughing or they yeah. learned something they didn't yeah. know before or they learned yeah. something they didn't know while laughing. Great. Uh, segue where you said, and you, you can or you don't have to talk about it. I'm just, I'm just curious and maybe it'll help other people. Is there a certain... How did you deal with grief? Like, is there a certain technique? Did you uh, get counseling beforehand? Like, and for your kids as well? I'm just, I'm just really curious about that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm dealing. Dealing, it, yeah, um, for sure. Which it's been tough. I realized even yesterday, I'm still dealing with it when it's sort of like COVID. You know, you think you're out of it, and you're not. Uh, you know, you think you're coming out of grieving and then some things just hit you like a wet mackerel fish to the face out of like some old Three Stooges movie. And <laughs> it just and you're not prepared for it. And yeah. it, it whacks you down. I I had never been to therapy before. I don't have any problem with it or anything. I just hadn't. Whether I was blissfully superficial or blissfully lucky, I didn't have the need, mm. um, which is stupid, because now that I'm in therapy, I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> I could have used this a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of therapy and that, that has helped. Uh, it has also helped me to try to put into perspective how great it was that I had, which, which works two things for you. On one end, it's wonderful going forward. On the other end, it's devastating that you don't have that anymore. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting. I, I, I've spent like a, I won't, I, you know what? I'm not going to talk like other people. I've spent a good chunk of my life controlling the narrative mm. around my day, around people around me since I was, I don't know, in high school. I, I guess I was talking to my brother about this today. Maybe I felt a void. Maybe I felt a void in leadership or whatever. And I love to be the center of attention. So. You know, I spent my whole life controlling the narrative and it's been I've been successful doing it. It's one of those things. I played football when I was younger and I had a strong bench press and upper body. So what did I do? I kept bench pressing more and I built up the strong and my legs needed it more than anything else, which was stupid. And now I have problems with my legs. Well, similarly, I think controlling things gave me success. So I kept controlling things, which is interesting. And one thing I, I found is I probably did it because I had the desire to to lead and be the center of attention or control mm -hmm. the narrative, maybe. And people were willing to acquiesce it to me. Mm -hmm. But one thing I've really learned now in, in my grief is the unbelievable sweet irony of life, which is when you stop trying to control everything and you give it up, the more control you have. And that is just a mind blowing wonderful um, new thought that I didn't have before. And I wish I knew that when I was 25. Man, I, I, I just so love that. I, I have very similar control issues uh, all my life. And I read this book uh, called The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. Uh, I don't know if you ever read that, but basically he's, he's a guy that was a really brilliant guy and he ended up, he kept, he wanted to do the surrender experiment. So he kept surrendering. He moved into the woods and didn't even have a home and he built one and everything. 
and, and everything was just happening to him that he wasn't trying. He became like the CEO of WebMD for like out of nowhere. Uh, just all these things that started happening and create this company and he kept surrendering, surrendering. And I'm like, I want to do that too. But how do I do that? Because I can't surrender. I can't move in the woods. I can't give up all my you know kids and all that other stuff. But I, what you said, you know, things happen in your life that are out of your control. And when that happens, it's like, holy shit, I try to control the narrative. I try to control my work, my, my life. And this is something that's I can't control. So now what? And now you have to like make choices in the and I what you said I think is brilliant. I, I need and that's to- where I am right now in my life. And that, you know, yeah. my wife getting metastatic breast cancer was out of her control and out of my control. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, that's uh I, I'm I'm grateful for you uh, sharing that. I think people need to hear uh that as well. Uh, because there's a lot of people who walk in LA, I would say people walk with it putting on a certain face and you never know what's going on, you know, behind all that stuff. So, you know, you smile and you're good, but you know, you could be dealing with some grief too. So having an so empathy I'm, for everybody. I'm laughing because I was in LA for a month this spring um, and I was having all these great meetings, great yeah. meetings. And I had breakfast with a friend of mine out there and he said, that's good, Kurt, but remember what, a famous expression, a famous uh, comment about LA is. Mm. I said, what? And it is Hollywood is the only place where you can die of encouragement. (laughs) So there's a lot of that. Yes. Great. Wonderful. Uh, To your point, who knows? You know, there is a little bit of a difference on, on working in the West coast and the East coast. And again, this is, hyperbolic for the sake of, uh, for the sake of example. But yeah, you know, when I worked in LA, it was that way. It was wonderful. I was at Fox and Disney and people, you never have bad meeting, right? There's a they give good meeting, yeah. but then stuff doesn't happen. Yeah. I moved back to the East coast. I forgot about it. And you're told right away <laughs> that sucks or this or that. And guess what? I'd rather see the knives coming at me than take them out of my back later on. Yeah, no, hundred percent. It's definitely follow through is not an LA thing. You don't smile. You have a conversation, and I and I have this East Coast mentality. Still, I'm on it. I'm like, what's the next steps? And people just stop responding. Like, well, you could have just told me that and stop wasting my time. But you know, they just can't look in your face and, and tell you that. Rather right, do it behind your back. Um, were you a wrestling fan? Were you a fan of like a WWE? And I wasn't. Which ironically, uh, helped my success at the company. Uh, I was never a fan growing up. I got there. I didn't know anything about it, but I was a real fan of the business model. And I thought what Vince had done was, was brilliant. And I was one of the first outside senior executives they'd ever hired. Mm. And the over under on me was that I would last nine months and I get fired. And then within the first three months, I put together this whole first ever corporate business plan. And when I put that in, the over under on me went down to three months. So like this guy's going to get blown out. But Vince saw the beauty of it and Mm. we put it in place and it was an easy, smart, not smart. It was an easy plan that worked and had success. But I bring that all up because again, I feel like we're just talking about ironies, but because I was not a wrestling fan, it was not my be all end all place to work. And because it wasn't my be all end all place to work, I didn't care if I was going to get fired. 
because I didn't care that I was going to get fired, I put myself out more and said more things. And ironically, of course, Vince respected that more because I was putting stuff out more and I got more success and more responsibility as a result of it. Interesting. So it's an life lesson there. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, and then uh, were you a fan of the Harlem Globetrotters? So I, like you, probably saw them growing up in the 70s. I saw Meadowlark Lemon and Curly Neal at the Westchester County Center, probably in 1974 in Westchester, New York. And I was a fan of what the Globetrotters wrought in their entertainment. They, at their best and at their finest, they put a smile on your face. Mm -hmm. And when I was at that company, I couldn't help but tell people, I have the best job in the world. My job at the end of the day is to make sure somehow that we put a product out there that puts smiles on faces. And what better than that? When I got there, the business was completely broken and my team, um, we did a wonderful job. My team was fantastic. And I say team, meaning players and business people. Mm -hmm. And we rejuvenated it and brought it to a whole new generation of fans. But we always kept the underlying mantra and vision that we're putting a smile on your face. And yeah. it was great. You know, we met, uh, we made Pope Francis an honorary globetrotter. So I got to meet him, <laughs> met Warren Buffett, came to a bunch of games. So we met a bunch of people because what I like to say is everyone has a Harlem Globetrotter story and they're all positive no matter yeah. where you go. Yeah. So it was so, great. Did you, so be, because being a fan and, and enjoying what they bring and not being a fan of W, uh, W E or any wrestling, uh, was it a different like you're saying that you were you were more out, you were weren't afraid to get fired in because you wanted to be there? Was it a different experience that you brought to the table? Well, a little bit. The the difference was I was CEO of the Harlem Globetrotter, so I wasn't really in danger of pissing off a boss. So that was good. <laughs> you're the boss. Though I do have a, maybe a split personality, maybe I'll piss myself <laughs> off. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so the answer is no on that end, but I fell in love with the brand. And mm -hmm. I didn't fall in love with the WWE brand. I fell in love with the business model. But with the Globetrotters, I fell in love with the brand because I saw the power of what we could do. So, yeah, it was different. And by the way, to that end, it does shrink a little bit your, your risk factor because you don't want to screw that up too much. But I also used to tell people, you know, we're not making heart medicine here. If we do something wrong, no one's going to die because of it. So let's right. take some chances. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what were some of your favorite places to travel that you went to? I'm just curious. Well, on business or on pleasure? In general. So I've had the, the unbelievable um, luck to be able to travel all over the world and, and a lot of different places. And there are a few places that I've actually had some mystic responses to or mystic experiences. And I don't know if it's because I imbued those places with it, knowing it was going to happen that way, or it just happened. So one of them is uh, being in Machu Picchu and going up in Peru and going up to Machu Picchu and just you're up high, so maybe your altitude is, you know, your brain's not working as much, but you look out and you just see what these people did a thousand years ago or 600 years ago, and you're just blown away. But there's something about the way everything is laid out and where it is and what happens. I just, it was like an out-of-body experience. And I had it there. 
Mm-hmm. I had it at the Wailing Wall in 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 uh, Jerusalem, which was unbelievable to me. I didn't expect to have it there, but I think I was again. It was I was there on Easter Sunday, and it was Passover, and it was a Muslim holiday, so it was the trifecta. And I think just walking through brought something to me. And then the last one was when I was on the on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, and you had just spent seven hours in the dark walking up, starting at midnight, and cresting at dawn to the world's highest single mountain, and there's nothing around it, and you're just looking forever. And so those were phenomenal, phenomenal opportunities, phenomenal experiences for me. Amazing. Uh, on, on going Kilimanjaro, did you, when, when you hit like a base camp, did you uh, uh, have that uh, yak milk drink that uh, Dave Asprey talks about? You ever hear Dave uh, tell his story about how he created uh, a Bulletproof? He said he was uh, going to Kilimanjaro and he had a, um, some sort of base camp with uh, locals and they served him this tea and he was really tired and his energy was low and he drank this tea and it gave him all this energy and he was trying to find out what was in it. And he said the secret ingredient was yak milk and that's how he came up with Bulletproof coffee. Really? That's, <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> I, uh, I don't record, I mean, I don't remember uh, having that but it was to me that was an amazing experience again you talk about earlier about getting out of like when you go for hikes and stuff yeah. there's something again and it's the last time i'll use the word irony on this on this episode <laughs> but there's something so oxymoronic about again it's like the control thing but when you let your mind go free of what you're working on wow, shit pops in and it's pretty cool. So right. it, uh, except I will say we got way up high. We were probably at about 17,000 feet. So altitude was definitely getting to us at this point. And one of us started talking about quantum physics and string theory. Mm. And one of the people on our trip actually knew something about it. So I was so curious. I started asking him questions, but your brain is not focused at that point. And we yeah. all just started giggling because we could not comprehend. Now I probably couldn't if I were down at sea level, but we could not comprehend what it is. The fact that we chose to have a conversation about string theory at 17,000 feet is funny in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's a really good segue because my next question I was going to ask you was about your, your opinion about plant medicine in general. And, uh, but that's, that's an experience you can, so I've talked to yogis before that say that they can have an experience where without any external drugs, where they can tap in to some part of their amygdala and still get those neurochemicals out through meditation and stuff. But, you know, plant medicine sometimes helps to accelerate those experiences. So wanted to get your thoughts on uh, how you feel about plant medicine. Look, I, I am, I'm all for anything that helps people live better lives, no matter what it is. Um, we were, my family, we were in Vietnam a couple of years ago and my younger son, probably five years ago, my younger son was, was really ill. And we were on a, one of those, they call them junks, boats in Halong Bay yeah. in Vietnam. And he was really bad. And the guys who were the local Vietnamese on the boat came with some sort of concoction that they were rubbing on his temples. And it was a plant-based you know, um, panacea, I guess. And it really helped him, you know? Yeah. And I was like, can you do some of that on me? Do some of that on me? 
So uh, you didn't bring any back with you? <laughs> no, I should have. But there's power in it, right? I mean, yeah. look, we as, as as humans, we've been curing things with plants far longer than we have with with synthetic medicine. And I have no nothing against synthetic medicine either. Um, but clearly there's something to it, right? If it's been working for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Well, even synthetic medicine, I mean, the, the ideas were from plants and they said, well, what can we do to synthesize that experience in the lab so we can kind of get your own, uh, your own chemicals to fire? That's most of the medicines to use your body to stimulate something. This is kind of an analog. I'll go back to where you're going, but um, one of our podcasts was how beer saved civilization or started civilization, saved the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the whole thing is that similar that the theory is that beer was founded by people accidentally, the sun hitting um, some certain types of crops, mm -hmm. some barley, and that was in a place where they happened to be staying for a while. And someone drank it and kind of liked it. And then it made them feel good socially and they liked it so much that they decided to start planting things and staying. So humankind mm -hmm. stopped roaming and mm -hmm. they started settling. Not only did they start settling, but they procreated more because they liked the way this <laughs> made them feel. It was, you know, social lubrication even back then and it helped them get out of their individual familial tribes and mm -hmm. pro meet and procreate and it saved the world and started the civilization. I, I think all that stuff is true. Yeah, except except that uh, once they started drinking a lot, now they started getting into fights and there was bar fights. You don't see that uh, with people, you know, smoking weed. Uh, just uh, if they were if they were look, uh, you know, passing a joint around instead of a beer, maybe they would have had uh, a more. Uh, so let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Do you think that is a result of the beer versus the weed, or do you think it's a predisposition to the type of person who's going to be drinking the alcohol versus the type of person that's going to smoke the weed. So are you going into it one way or are you coming out of it? Right. Yeah. It's a combination of a little bit of both, but uh, what, what cannabis does, it actually stimulates the production of your own endogenous endocannabinoids. So one of them is uh, called, um, uh, <laughs> one of them is called an and <laughs> one of them is called anandamide. Uh, anandamide, the word anon means bliss in Sanskrit. So you're actually stimulating the production of your own endogenous means within your endogenous endocannabinoid that is a bliss hormone. So if you're getting, and that THC is the active ingredient in, in cannabis that gives you that euphoric high feeling, uh, that's what's stimulated. So it's the stimulation of anandamide. So people that consume that, feel a blissful, uh, they don't want to fight, you don't want to fight smoking a joint, but when you're drinking alcohol, it actually stimulates different chemicals within your bloodstream and in your brain. So it goes to your liver, converts, goes and passes a blood brain barrier, and then stimulates and creates, uh, you know, dopamine and adrenaline. And when you have those chemicals, sometimes, uh, that are, uh, that are stimulated, you know, there's, and some people are, are more prone, the ones that are prone to more aggressive behavior, they, they turn on that genetic predisposition. Well, I guess, I guess you're right. I mean, right. We've always heard of the angry drunk. You don't hear of the angry toker. No, if they want peace in the Middle East, uh, I was like, just uh, fly over, uh, throw everybody joints, and uh, let's uh, let's all do a big circle smoke you, together. I have spike. used the CBD THC cream 
mm-hmm. um, on my knees, my arthritis, and uh, some different areas of my body, and it does work wonders. Yeah, it's a, it's an it's an amazing plant, but you know, it's it's a personalized experience to everybody, uh, depending on where you are and what your predispositions are. Our company tries to help people avoid those adverse events too. I think it's great. I, yeah. I smeared it on my knees, which everything was great until my knees started ordering dominoes. But be- <laughs> that's that's exactly the side effect there, you know. No, but people but people do have uh, you know some adverse effects from uh, from cannabis that uh, uh, you know like getting anxiety and paranoia, and some people are prone to depressive states. So if you know this in advance, you know what. Everything that you consume is a personalized experience. And I always find it fascinating. Now, with DNA testing becoming so prevalent, I always find it fascinating that people are like, oh, I don't want to give up my DNA. Why would you not want to know everything you can possibly know about yourself so you can take action? Like, maybe it's my whole control thing. Maybe you're the same thing. I want to know everything. Show me anything I can do, anything I can do to biohack myself or that can avoid certain things. Yeah. Head in the sand, not a good thing. I agree. Exactly. Um, All right. So I asked my uh, guests these uh, three questions. Uh, You can answer or not answer, but everybody gets the same three. And they're really, really difficult. Isn't this like the Proust questionnaire? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. Really difficult. So get ready for these. You got to really, really rack your your brain. Um, Please describe your first experience with cannabis. And I know you're not a cannabis guy. I'm not a cannabis guy, but I do have experiences with it. Um, (laughs) Funnily enough, my first experience, I remember this is the seventies. So I'm, I'm, I'm qualifying that was on a boy scout hike (laughs) in the seventies. Of course it was. Uh huh. Uh huh. And, uh, you know, we were in the woods, a bunch of guys, and uh, a guy had had uh, his parents had a weekend house, and he grew weed himself, like on the lower acre where his parents couldn't tell, and it was not strong. Like we we would roll these massive Cheech and Chong joints because <laughs> you know you were taking a gazillion hits. Um, but that was my first experience, and I, I thought it was pretty cool. One of the things I liked about it was the communal nature of it. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I think with COVID uh, and and vaping, that's sort of going away. And I see like people, people you know, are vaping by themselves, and everybody's got their own vape. Nobody's passing the joint around anymore. That's so right. I hope we can get. Uh, well, there. and by the way, I think we probably hate COVID and some other things. And now there's probably a little more sanitary ways to do it. But yeah, you know, there was always that one kid who just <laughs> slobbered all over the friggin'. <laughs> exactly. And those easy widers were not that thick back then. So you yeah. get it. And yeah. And it's wet. Yeah, yeah. That's gross. Uh-huh. Um, all right. So I'm a, I'm a big music guy too. I know you're, you're a music guy also. So do you remember what was the first concert you ever went to? Japan. Remember, I said I was in Tokyo. Yeah. Uh, I actually went to two concerts in the same year in Japan. It was probably 1973. One was The Carpenters. Mm-hmm. They were on tour in Japan back then. Yep. And the second was Jose de Feliciano, also oh, wow. on tour. Wow. That's pretty cool. Those are my first ones. I was seven, and my mom dragged my mom. You know, we grew up Catholic and my mom in the late 60s was part of like folk mass, which was a whole big thing where you went from hmm. the 
out of the Latin and they would do these side ones. So it was not, it wasn't even like the church. You had to go in the side chapel or the cafeteria and the like cool priest would come out and say mass there. And then instead of like the organ, there was a bunch of people like my mom playing guitars and guitar and singing folk songs. So anyway, she took me to both of those. That's pretty cool. Uh, Do you remember the last concert you went to? Oh, it has to be recently. So, uh, Jeez. Maybe, maybe pre, pre-COVID? It was definitely pre-COVID. Oh, my God. Uh, it doesn't have the big impact it should have. The answer is yes, and I'll yeah. get back to you on that one. Okay. I don't know which was. I'll tell you probably my favorite concert okay. was seeing uh, the Rolling Stones in Madrid, Spain in 1982, and yeah. Jay Giles warmed up for them, and that was phenomenal. Then I came home, and I saw – the who at Shea stadium that fall. So that was a good sort of six months there. Yeah. Stones are touring now. They're, uh, they're going to be, they're on tour now. Yeah. Supposed to be going to that. Let's see how they do. I saw them at, uh, the, uh, desert trip, the old cello, uh, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, they were still great, but you know, now, now all these old bands, like I try to see them every single time I can, because who knows, could be the last time like Paul McCartney. By the way, I just remembered the last concert I went to was actually, it was an impromptu backyard one four weeks ago in Montauk. I saw Graham Nash perform. Oh, wow. Wow. He was phenomenal. He did all the Holly stuff. He did CSN stuff. He did his own. He, and his voice, the guy's 79 years old. His voice is still phenomenal. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so, uh, oh, one more music question, uh, because we already talked about cannabis. I don't, I don't need to uh, ask you about that. Do you remember what was your first album that you purchased? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> so, again, two of them. One of them was, it was the Beach Boys' 15 Big Ones. So I guess it was 15 Greatest Hits. But right. the one I really remember, we were my family was visiting my uncle out in California mid seventies. And for Christmas, he gave my brother and me albums and he gave me America's greatest hits. Oh, and I was probably nine and my, or 10. And my brother said to me, who was 12 at the time, you don't want that. So I said to my uncle, I don't want this. And I said to my brother, what do I want? And he said, Zeppelin two. And I said, I want Zeppelin two. And I wore that record out. Right oh there. my lord! That was my favorite. A whole lot of love and me are one and the same person. It's, it's, my, it's my favorite Zeppelin album. I know it's like people. Are like, ah, what about physical graffiti? No, that's my favorite Zeppelin album. My first album I ever bought with was Zeppelin Four, which is here somewhere too. I still have the original album. But when I discovered uh, Zeppelin Two, and I discovered after Zeppelin Four, man, that was the album. I completely. Agree you know the, how Led Zeppelin got its name. Uh, I think the guy was saying that it'll drop faster in Led Zeppelin or some of that. Wasn't that so a good conversation? By the way, this is the type of thing we talk about on Smart Dribble. Yeah. And we talk about it in one of the episodes. So the, the a story, whether it's apocryphal or not, is that Led Zeppelin was actually a super group where these guys are all getting together. And what critics said, oh, my God, those guys getting together will go over as well as a, as a lead that, Zeppelin or lead right. balloon. It's what yeah, he said. Yeah, yeah. And then balloon Zeppelin, and they changed L-E-A-D to L-E-D. And there right, you right. go. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. By that, the way, you know, this is another thing we come up with in, in our podcast. But 
I, I love this one. Do you know where the word posh comes from? You know, when you say someone's very posh, they're very fancy. No. You know where it comes from? No. So when England was colonizing India way mm. back when, you'd take a boat to get there and the boat was very hot. But if you were part of the aristocracy, you could afford to book passage in the side of the boat that was in the shade the whole way. So mm. if you had enough money, you would book port out starboard home. Mm. Got it. Interesting. Great. I love that kind of stuff. That's why we say we promise the drivel and hope for the smart because we have a I, lot of that in there. I love it. That's that's my kind of stuff. All right. So I have one more bonus question for you and then we'll, you can tell people where they can find you and listen more of the, this uh, wonderful information that you're sharing with us. Uh, please describe what your room looked like growing up. <laughs> Red shag carpet. Uh-huh. Two twin beds that were bunk beds, but separated Mm -hmm. wallpaper on the wall. One was a ugly ass crosshatch pattern (laughs) of yellow and brown. And the other was antique cars that I never changed from when I was eight until (laughs) in college. Um, A desk uh, and a dresser. Cool. No, No posters or anything on the wall, right? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Lots of posters. Bob Greasy. Uh I had the Bob Greasy poster and I had Led Zeppelin poster because I loved Zeppelin too. Those were the two things that I had over my wall wallpaper, my car wallpaper. Right. That's so cool. Um, Kurt, I wanted to thank you so much. Where can uh, people find out more about you or your podcast? Anything else that you want people to go to? So I think, um, learning about my podcast is better than learning about me. It's a lot more fun. Uh, It's called Smart Drivel, D-R-I-V-E-L. As I said, we promise the drivel and hope for the smart. My co-host, John Ellenthal, and I release a new podcast every Monday at 9 a.m. And you can find us wherever you get podcasts, just like yours. We're on Apple. We're on Spotify. We're on any place you want. And uh, it's 25 minutes. It's a conversation we have, not unlike this, um, where we pick different topics uh, and, you know, how beer saved the world. What's, you know, we talk, actually, you love music. One of our, 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 our episodes was about the women that were all these songs, you know, who was Eleanor Rigby and uh, who was every single one. And we go about it. We, we deconstruct it and find out who the women were. So fun stuff like that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Yeah, that's great. It's up my alley. But I just want to say thank you so much for joining. This was so much fun. Really enjoyed it. Hope uh, everybody else did. And, uh, Appreciate your time. Len, it was great. It was personal, but everything's personal. (laughs) Exactly. Thanks. That's good. All right, man. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.